You're listening to the Less Stress in Life podcast. Your hosts, Deb Timmerman and Barb Fletcher, are on a mission to help individuals and organizations manage stress and change. Together, they bring you real conversations, inspirational stories, and strategies to help move you from being stressed to feeling your best. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Less Stress in Life podcast. Today we are talking to guest Nicole Campbell about building resiliency through a personal health crisis. Nicole spent many years in elementary education. She has a master's degree in special ed and just earned her second master's of education in trauma and resiliency. Welcome, Nicole. We're so happy you're here. Hi, thank you for letting me come on here. I'm really excited. This topic of medical trauma, tell us about when the medical trauma started in your life? What was the road to that? Just after college, I had was looking for teaching positions. I had started uh, just with really small teaching jobs here and there. And I began to um, experience some, some health issues. They were minor to start with, but then they started to develop to actually really impact my daily life. So we started going to specialists after specialists, and no one really knew what was going on. And after about five to six specialists, they kind of just diagnosed it as being in my head. And we're really grateful we had a family physician at that time who did not believe that that was the case. He really thought that something more was going on. And we found out, uh, first off, my gallbladder wasn't working. And during the gallbladder surgery, some ribs get dislocated. And they couldn't figure out why that happened and took about a year of horrible pain for them to realize that had happened and to fix that issue. And we ended up at Mayo. I was diagnosed with a couple of different, just kind of random um, medical uh, problems because they weren't really sure what was going on. And so they were just kind of like, well, let's throw this syndrome on here, this syndrome, and, and we still don't know what's happening. And after about six years, we finally ended up at a doctor who was like, hey, can you touch your thumb to your forearm? And I said, well, yeah, of course I can. And he had me do a couple other clinical tests there. And he was like, I think you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And then through there, he sent me to a geneticist who then started asking me more questions and was like, hey, I think you have um, what's called POTS, which is a blood pressure and heart rate uh, condition. And I also think you have what's called mast cell activation syndrome, which would explain why you are always reacting to medications, reacting to foods. And we finally heard the statement, this isn't in your head, this is in your genes. That to us was a huge thing because we have been fighting for at that point now seven years to just find a name to just a list of medic of just medical issues to the fact where I was eating um, liquid foods only. I couldn't eat actual solid foods. I was in pain all the time. Um, and so within six months of that diagnosis, we were able to get treatment that actually at least helped 50% of those issues. And then 2017, the NIH found a gene that they believed connected these three conditions. And so my family and I were tested in 2018 and found that I, yes, had 
um, the possibility of this gene, um, and so did my mother. And then in, finally in 2020, the FDA and the CDC decided that um, hereditary alpha tryptismia um, was an official disorder that had a genetic component to it. And we were given, all of us, another genetic test, and it was confirmed that yes, this disorder was real. It affects my connective tissues, it uh, my gut, um, my ability to not react to different allergens and medications, all connected by this one gene. So we definitely had quite the journey, my family and I, over a course of about a 10 year period, just getting a diagnosis and a confirmation that, hey, it's not in your head, there's a gene, and while treatments are still being developed on a daily basis, research has really increased in the last few years because of it. So that's kind of what started this whole medical journey of, of my life and the different traumas that occurred throughout that time, both physically and due to um, some medical conversations with doctors and different hospitals. And yet we know that April 1st of 2018, something even more significant happened to you. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. So obviously we had been on a crazy road already. And in 2018, um, we were still in the process of finding a treatment for what was called mast cell activation syndrome. And the hospital put me on a very high dose of steroids accidentally never changed the dosage. And I was on 150 um, milligrams of steroids for over two weeks before they realized that they didn't decrease. So over the course of a couple of, of weeks, they, they were starting to do that. And right about the time that the steroids started to, to finally wean off, I felt a horrible pain in my thigh. And so we at first just thought, okay, I injured it somehow, and it started hurting more, so we went into the ER, and with a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos, where you dislocate or sublux your joints regularly, doctors just assumed that I had done that to either my hip or knee. They did an ultrasound and an x-ray, came back fine, sent me home. A few hours later, I was still in so much pain. I was clammy and cold. And I was like, something more is wrong. And so we went back into the ER. I couldn't put weight on my leg. And I got there and my blood pressure was 58 over 12. And I was in septic shock. There was nothing wrong with my legs still at that point. They couldn't see anything. The doctors were extremely concerned. And we were at a very small town hospital. So he finally got it so that I was stable enough to be put in an ambulance. Um, and they drove me up to a hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. When I got to Grand Rapids, they removed the sheet and my leg had turned black and blue with uh, blood blisters. The nurse began to highlight around with a pen um, and couldn't keep, she goes, I can't keep up. It keeps going over the line faster than I can draw. So at this point, this, the uh, on-call surgeon looked at her and went, Never mind on the MRI, we're going into surgery. So I signed the paperwork to have a debridement and they took me into surgery. A few hours later, they came back to my parents, said it's not working, it's still spreading. Um, we believe it's necrotizing fasciitis, which is a flesh-eating bacteria. 
And so they took me back into surgery. Again, they waited. My numbers were declining at a rapid rate. And so the doctor finally came and said, listen, my colleagues have informed me to send you to U of, send her to U of M. I don't think she'll live if I do that. So our only options are two things. We can make her comfortable and let her go peacefully, or we can remove her leg from the hip joint down and give her less than a 20% chance of living. So the doctors gave that option to my parents. My parents talked with my brothers. They ended up signing the paperwork, took a general surgeon in. It was three millimeters away from my internal organs. So they just made it. And so they amputated my leg from the hip joint down. They were able to keep my pelvis. So I knew the pelvic bone still. And then they waited. It was just a weight gain. So my parents just put on Facebook and prayed. And about 24 hours later, my numbers started to climb. At 48 hours, I was waking up and starting to talk by using an alphabet board. I tried doing sign language because I, I do know sign language, but no one understood what I was saying. And so we used an alphabet board. And of course, in true me uh, fashion, I tried using big words on an alphabet board. So it was quite the interesting uh, time. But then at 72 hours, I had been, the tube uh, down my throat was taken out. Um, I was off dialysis. They had taken pretty much all of the beans away. I was sitting up eating and starting PT of, of learning how to sit up again. Doctors were shocked. I went from being the sickest patient in all of Grand Rapids to being an average patient within just 72 hours. And then I started the course of, of another 20 surgeries over the course of a month to clean it up, uh, have a graft, move muscles, um, and then an 84-day stay um, that included rehab. So that was kind of the adventure that occurred starting um, April 1st that we were not you know, prepared for. Well, the only thing that comes to mind is the word resilient because you endured a ton of things and procedures and wow, what an amazing story. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it really does just leave you speechless. And, and you know, we know that uh, many people would have said, this is too hard. I just can't do this. So to hear your story, just, you know, it, it creates um, just so much connection for me to you to hear it because I, I can't believe the internal strength that you must have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, an interesting thing. Um, I don't know if it's because of the resiliency that was built up with the whole genetic, you know, journey that we had been on prior to this, but the story is, I don't really remember most of this because I was on a lot of medication, but the story is that when they first woke me up from the medically induced coma, the doctor told me I had lost my leg and I just gave him a thumbs up. And she's like, I don't think they under she understands. And I gave her another thumbs up, like, I've got this. And I just had this peace about it the whole time. And when they removed the tube, they were like, you know, you understand. And I said, I can still teach, I can still live my life without my leg. 
I lived, you know, and so I think that that was the catapult that pushed through was knowing that less than 10% chance of, of living was, was there. And I did, and, um, you know, research afterwards, knowing that only 5% of people who have the type of necrotizing fasciitis that I had survive really kind of puts things in perspective uh, very quickly, I think. And so I do contribute a lot of that resiliency to the fact that one, I had this journey prior to this and two, knowing that I really shouldn't be here. So um, just living each day is going, this is another day I shouldn't have. Um, kind of really does help you keep things, you know, that momentum going on the bad days. Life after an amputation and loss of the leg involves a ton of changes, things that we take for granted. What do you wish you would have known about navigating a disability before you became disabled? So one of the things that I think I had an assumption that the ADA, the Disability Act, covered a lot more than what it does. And that the world was way more accessible than what it is. I just assumed that the little wheelchair symbol on bathroom doors meant that every person could use that bathroom easily. That hotels and everything, you know, obviously they show wheelchair accessible rooms, so it has to be accessible for every person who is in a wheelchair. And that's not the case. Um, it's not easy always to just go out about your day. I have to plan. I have to plan where there are accessible restrooms that I actually can get my wheelchair in and use effectively because I need to have those bars. Um, because of the way that I transfer, I stand and pivot. So I have to have that vertical bar, which not every restroom has. Also, they're not always... We call them horse troughs. Um, they're very skinny and long. They do not have the width of a wheelchair. So you can't have that turn radius. So your wheelchair gets stuck and then you can't get you know, there. Not every hotel bathroom is measured correctly. Hotel beds are really tall. So traveling that way is very difficult. Um, not all curbs are smooth. They have big cracks in them where you're excuse me, your, your caster wheels or your anti-tips, which are in the back of your wheelchair, get stuck in, and then you're just there spinning, you know, your wheels because you can't move. And so you have to learn a lot of tricks. You have to learn how to navigate that wheelchair in ways that you didn't realize before. You have to plan out whether or not where I'm going and what I'm doing today, I can use my crutches or do I need to use a wheelchair or do I need to bring a power wheelchair? Even at hospitals, the hospital, I cannot open the door to the bathroom because it's too heavy and I can't get a good um, angle on it to get myself in. So I always have to ask for help. You really have to learn to get past pride and ask for help because a lot of things are not accessible. And I think, too, one of the things that I never realized before this is that every single person who is a disability in a wheelchair does not come with the same story and the same ability level. And so you can't assume because you build it and it works for one person in a wheelchair that it's gonna work for every person in a wheelchair. 
and that that needs to be taken into accountability when we build things and when we look at how we're, you know, doing things. You know, traveling in a car became different. I don't sit the same way in the car. I don't get in the car the same way. How do we get my wheelchair in and out of the car? It depends on the wheelchair. So a lot of planning now goes into life that we didn't have before and that we took for granted, you know, that it was super simple to be like, hey, let's go to a concert tonight. Now it's, okay, can I get into the concert? Where am I sitting for the concert? How do we get down, you know, from there to our hotel and back if there's snow or if, you know, is there, is the sidewalk have huge cracks? If it does, you know, what do I need to have to make sure I get through that? And, you know, are the restrooms there? And how are we going to travel with a car? Whose car? Um, so definitely um, you learn to be humble. You learn to be resourceful um, and you learn to be patient and accept the fact that the world does not accommodate always for you. Like you wish they would, it was, you know, but unfortunately that's not our case yet here. And so you have to accommodate for the world and it takes time, it takes effort, but you know, a lot of people do just give up and we refuse to do that. Um, and being a hip disarticulate on top of that has its own challenges because there's so few of us. There's only a couple thousand in the US. And so, you know, my, my dad has become very <laughs> DIY, if you want to call it, because, you know, they don't make seats for me. They don't make how to transfer for me. So we had to become creative. Uh, so that was another kind of thing that I wasn't expecting before, you know, I wouldn't have expected that. And coming into it, I was like, oh, <laughs> look at the things you learn. <laughs> Pool noodles have multiple uh, ways to use them. <laughs> like my dad used pools noodles for everything. That's kind of our joke. If you can't figure it out, use a pool noodle. So I think sense of humor also kind of helps at times. You know, we just have to kind of laugh it off and not let it get too frustrating. But I learned a lot. And uh it's unfortunate sometimes that that's the case, but it is what it is. When I listen to all of the planning that you do and, and the effort that requires you to, to actually live day to day, many people would become overwhelmed and frustrated and angry. And I'm just, I'm interested to know if you have any tools or tricks that you use to keep such a solid perspective and mindset, um, you know, moving forward. Um, I would say there's a couple of things. Um, first off is like, we have a very strong faith. So our faith, you know, we rely on that. Second is family. Um, I am very blessed to have amazing parents who, you know, um, an example is they gave up their master bedroom so that we could convert that into a wheelchair accessible bedroom and bathroom. Um, so having that, they're willing to give up half their staircase to a stair chair that provides it so I could go up the staircase and they drop everything they can um, to help support me. So whether it's family or friends or just some kind of support system, I think is something that 
anyone, at least the first few years you're dealing with a disability like this, really needs somebody in your corner because it's hard to navigate, not just the world, but the medical world. It, it's hard to, to get to doctors and to get your durable medical equipment and just all the things that are also entailed in just the medical aspect of it. Having that support system is big. Having a sense of humor about it all is something that I have found to be it. Um, you know, I make jokes. When I first woke up, I made the joke of, do I get to be a flamingo for Halloween? My mom said it was too soon to make those kind of jokes, but <laughs> she's like, too soon. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of how I handle things. And so for me, sense of humor was what I, I grasped, you know, grabbed onto and just really focused on, like, trying to find the humor in certain situations to kind of make light of it and just kind of help us get through that stressful situation. Doesn't mean it works every time, but it's that. And lastly, I, I would say too, is looking at your small triumphs, your, you know, celebrating those small things. So we videotape, we take pictures of everything that I do accomplish. So the first time I cooked in the kitchen, the first time I walked with my crutches. The first time I transferred from my wheelchair into the car, the first time I sat up on my own, we have video or pictures of those things. And when I'm in a rough time because I'm not making a goal or I am not accomplishing something that I want to accomplish, I can now go back to that, whether it's on Facebook or in my phone and go, yeah, but look where I was. Two years ago, I couldn't walk. Wow. Three years ago, I couldn't sit up on my own. I had to have help. So that has been a big part of doing that kind of thing. Um, doctors said I would never leave a bed. I would live my life in a bed. And if I was outside, I would be in a power wheelchair and always need help from somebody. And that is not the case now. And so being able to look back at that and go, yeah, but look at what I have been able to accomplish helps you refocus and say, okay, it might take six months, but I can do this because I've done this and this and this and this. So that's kind of my, my kind of core things that I, I keep my, that keep me going. Nicole, what do you hope to do with this new degree that you have in trauma and resiliency? I hope to be able to help others, um, specifically kids, you know, being an elementary teacher for almost 12 years prior to all of this. And I did go back to teaching after losing my leg and then had some complications that made it so that I had to, to leave teaching for a while. I really want to help kids and families who are going through different traumas, whether that is a medical trauma or just simple traumas of a fire of the house or a divorce or the pandemic, whatever it is that is affecting kids' success in school or just a family's ability to, to navigate whatever trauma that they have going on, my hope is to be able to, to work with those families and provide them with the resources they need to build up resiliency and to know that they can heal and, and move forward despite any obstacles or um, problems that, that happened, you know, in their life that we, we can make it and help them get that support. A lot of people don't have the support system that I've been blessed with. And so sometimes they need that. And so if I can help either 
provide that or help them find that support system, that would be, you know, a great way to start with, with this degree um, to help them, you know, continue that path toward um, not just surviving their trauma, but thriving. Well, you're a wonderful example of thriving after trauma. Thank you so very much for sharing your story today. You have a blog that you write called My Zebra Journey. Do you want to yes. share with our listeners where they can find that and how to contact you? Yes. Yeah, so um, on Facebook, I have two. I have a page. It's called My Zebra Journey, um, where I just share just brief stuff. Um, and then I actually have a group. Um, but it's public. You can just go look at it. It's just called My Zebra Journey on Facebook. And I share things about my different genetic condition. Um, the reason why it's called zebra is because the condition that I have, um, the ribbon is zebra print. Um, so it's called My Zebra Journey. And um, you can go on there. I share things that are happening within my amputation life. I do little PSA announcements too about um, different accessibility issues or just things that happen in the daily life of someone who's an amputee, um, as well as um, just sharing different people's stories. If I have, you know, I see them along the way I'll share. So I uh, feel more than welcome to look that up on Facebook um, join us and uh, contribute as much as, as anybody else. I love sharing other people's stories as well. So there you go. Yeah, we'll put the links to that Facebook group in our show notes and they can message you through instant messenger yeah. through that. Thank you so much, Nicole, for being on today. We have really enjoyed this chat with you. We wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Such an inspiration. All the best. Thank you.